or take for granted. Last fall, we started a series on James, and we've kind of sporadically hit that and come back to it now and again. And that's where we're going to be today in James chapter 4. We're going to be looking, continuing to look at living a life that is consistent with faith in Christ. I want to start with a, a story. It's a true story, unfortunately. It's a, a rather sad tale, but it's true. They were a happy little family living in a small town in North Dakota. Even though the young mother had not been entirely well since the birth of her second baby, a simple and humble little family. Each evening, the neighbors were aware of the warmth in their hearts when they would see the husband and father being met at the gate by his wife and two little children. There was laughter in the evening. And when the weather was nice, the father and children would play in the backyard while the mother looked on with happy smiles. Then one day, a village gossip started a story saying that the father had been unfaithful to his wife, a story that was entirely untrue. But it eventually came to the ears of the young wife, and it was more than she could bear. Reason left its throne, and that night when her husband came home, there was no one to meet him at the gate, no laughter in the house, no fragrant aroma from the kitchen, only coldness and something that chilled his heart with fear. Down in the basement, he found the three of them. Sickened in despair, the young mother had first taken the lives of her two children and then her own. In the days that followed, the truth of what had happened came out. A gossip's tongue had wrought a terrible tragedy. Such is the power of a slanderous tongue. From where does such evil speech come from? Well, it comes from a prideful heart. One thing we know about pride, pride cannot coexist with humility. In our text today, James shows us how pride plays out in slanderous speech and in arrogant planning. Join me as we read from James chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do 
and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, our need for your grace is, is great. And so is our need to be humble before you. What else can we be before you, Almighty God, other than humble? You have given us your word that we might have life. You have given us these scriptures that we might know how to live before you and before our neighbors. Teach us this morning, Lord. We, we come with open minds and with open hearts. May we learn and apply what you have for us today. And may all the honor and all the glory always be to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, the last time we were in James, our brother Luke walked us through the first part of this chapter. And we saw that humility is one of these markers, these identifying factors, a sign, if you will, of living faith. Throughout this epistle, we have seen these tests, these indicators of genuine living faith. So far, James has challenged us with how we respond to trials and to temptations, asked us if we're doers of the word or hearers only. He's challenged us with how we respond to people in need, asked us if we play favorites. We've been shown that our words reveal our true heart, whether it's the heart of the old man or the transformed heart of the new man. And then there's the wisdom that we have. Is it human wisdom or is it heavenly wisdom? And he's asked us, are you a friend of the world or a foe? In the, the preceding verses, James points out that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And he also reminds us, as we just read, that God lifts up those who humble themselves before him. In our text today, James gives us two illustrations of how humility is violated by selfish pride. And the first is speaking evil or slander. Our first point this morning, how you think controls what you say. Speaking evil, as it's used here, is probably best translated as slander or defamation. It carries the connotation of speaking against a person with evil intentions, maliciously, purposely telling lies, and doing it publicly, publicly just to hurt someone. Can you guess what sin is denounced more times in the Old Testament than any other? If you guess defamation, slander, against God or against an individual, you would be right. So here we have yet another sin that comes forth from our heart through our mouth, through our tongue. Remember in chapter 3 of James, he posed the question, who can tame the tongue? Sins of the tongue are the most prolific and the most destructive because there are virtually no controls on it. 
You can say anything at any time to anyone about anyone. So we've seen that humility is an essential characteristic of those who receive God's grace. Speaking evil of another is a violation of humility. It's an expression of that sin of selfish pride. It's therefore out of character for us as Christians to slander anyone, let alone a believer. And yet, here's James telling us, or telling those that he's writing to, that they should stop doing this, implying that some of them were. James is echoing what we find elsewhere in Scripture. Let's uh, back that up with just a few examples. Turning first to Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Three out of the seven things that it says God hates here have to do with how we speak about other people. God hates a lying tongue, he hates false witnesses, and he hates those that sow discord or spread strife. Oh wow, spreading strife. That puts us right back at the beginning of James chapter four. In Exodus chapter 23, in the first verse, God gives this command. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. And in Ephesians 4, verse 31, Paul forcefully reiterates this command in the context of contrasting the old man with the new man. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Slander, the word translated slander here, is the exact same Greek word that James uses in our passage today. How about one more? In Matthew 5, verse 19, we find Jesus saying this. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And we could go to any number of Proverbs and Psalms. We could look at prophets like Jeremiah. Um, we, could, we could pull a bunch of verses from the New Testament. But I think you get the idea. James is fully in line with the context of all scripture here. Summing it up, we might say that God hates this sin of slander, of speaking evil of another person. It's despicable, and this is not living by faith. This is not characteristic of the Christian life. And yet, we do sometimes speak evil of another, don't we? Now, if it occurs habitually, if it's continuous in the life of, of someone who claims to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, then it's fair to question the validity of that profession of faith. 
But what about those of us who have been genuinely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? And yet we stumble. We sin by slanderous speech, by gossip, by backbiting. How do we gain control over our heart and thus gain control over our tongue? If we look closely at verses 11 and 12 here, I think James is telling us that it starts with how we think, how we think of others, how we think of God's law, how we think of God himself, and even how we think of ourselves. So let's spend a few minutes and unpack these one at a time. When you look at verse 11, do you see a, a particular noun repeated several times there? The word brothers or brethren. Slander within the community of faith is against family. It's against brothers and sisters in Christ. Family should protect one another, not attack each other. Speaking evil of someone is in direct opposition to our humility, and it's also a breach of our love for one another. Consider what Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 14. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he goes on, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We expect that kind of behavior from the world, right? But not in the church, not among believers, not among our family. How about 1 John chapter 2, verse 9? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Jump down a couple more chapters. 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who loves God loves the ones that God loves. If you love someone, you don't speak evil of them. You don't slander and you don't attack with malicious intent. My fellow Christians are God's beloved children, people for whom Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross, just like he did for me, just like he did for you. My brothers and sisters in Christ are eternally loved by God the Father. They're the very beloved of Jesus. When I see my brothers and sisters like this, then I see, I see them as those who are to be protected, to be nurtured, to be forgiven, to be cared for. And when I think of them this way, that's going to govern how I talk about them. I control evil speech, not by keeping my lips sealed. I control evil speech 
by keeping my thoughts about others right. Another way we control our speech is by what we think about God's law. Still in verse 11, he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. We need to be clear about the meaning of judging here. This is eternal judgment. This is eternal condemnation. And this kind of judging, that's God's court, not ours. As Christians, we're to speak the truth in love? Absolutely. We are not to speak evil in a spirit of rivalry or criticism. If the truth about a brother is harmful, then we cover it in love and we don't repeat it. If he has sinned, we go to him personally and we try to win him back, just as Jesus described in Matthew chapter 18. James is in no way forbidding us to evaluate people's words or people's actions. We are called to be discerning, but it's not our job to act like God in passing judgment, in condemning. We are to examine our own lives first, right? And then try and help others. That's Jesus in Matthew 7 when he said, uh, get the log out of your own eye before you try and get the speck out of your brother's. We'll never know all the facts, will we? We'll, we'll never know the motives that are in someone else's heart. So for us to speak evil of a brother or judge or condemn a sister on partial evidence and, and possibly on biased motives in our own heart, that's to sin against our brother or our sister. And that's to sin against God. Well, what is law? James talks about the royal law in chapter 2, where he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. Remember the Pharisee that came to Jesus and asked him, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's in Matthew 22 if you want to look that up. Paul is fully aligned with this idea as well. Consider what he said in Romans 13 verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now let's, let's go ahead and take this full circle and go all the way back in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 20. When God gave the, uh, the Israelites the Ten Commandments. Perhaps you're already familiar with the idea that the Ten Commandments are ten characteristics. They're ten features of love. If not, then you may want to give that some study. We're just going to hit the high points here. The first four commandments are about how we show our love for God. You shall have no other gods before me. Love for God is loyal. 
You shall not make any idols or worship them. Love for God is faithful. You shall not take the, the Lord's name in vain. Love for God is respectful. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Love for God is sanctifying. It's reverent. The remaining six commandments are about how we show love for our neighbor. And it starts with honor your father and mother. Love is submissive to authority. You shall not murder. Love upholds the sacredness of life. You shall not commit adultery. Love is pure. Love never seeks to defile. You shall not steal. Love is giving. Love never takes. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Love is truthful. You shall not covet. Love is content. James is saying, if you slander your brother, that's not love. And if it's not love, then you've broken the law. So if we defame someone, if we're speaking maliciously about someone, if we get our tongues wagging with gossip and backbiting and saying things that aren't true, we violate the law at its very core, at its very heart, because the law is an articulation of love's principles. Such speech speaks evil of the law. It condemns the law. It shows utter disregard for God's divine standard. If you judge your brother, you condemn your brother, and you're condemning the very law that is in, meant to protect your brother by calling you to love him. That's putting yourself above the law. You're saying, God's law doesn't apply to me. In effect, you're, you're saying that God's law is powerless over you. It's useless. That is extreme disrespect. Consider the end of verse 11. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. You've set yourself on the bench of the high court. You've said, I'm in charge. If you're not law-abiding, what are you? You're law-breaking. And if that's habitual, if that's the pattern of your life, then you need to be considering that your faith may very well be dead. James talked about that, didn't he, in, in chapter 2. I control evil speech by right thinking about God's law and by obeying his commandment to to love others. The sin of slander is the result of what we think of others, what we think of God's law, and what we think about God himself. This is a very logical progression. So what do we read in verse 12? There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. That means there's no room for you on the bench. On that judgment seat, nope, there's only one who has the power to save 
and to destroy. Guess what, folks? It's not you. When we sin, we put ourselves above the law. We're kicking God off the bench, and we're taking over. See if this sounds familiar. See if this resonates with what James is telling us here. Reading from Isaiah, starting uh, in chapter 14, starting in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. That's Satan. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan wanted to be like God. Satan wanted to be God. And the pride and the arrogance is so apparent. I will be above God. I will, I will sit on the throne. I will make myself like the most high. In his pride, Satan wanted to be in charge. He wanted to assert his will. And that has been the essence of every sin ever since. Sin violates God's law. It's a blatant declaration that the sinner is above God's law. And that's why David, after his terrible sin, remember he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah off to the front lines to be killed. He set himself above the authority of God's law. And what did he say? Against you, and you only, O oh God, have I sinned. How did he sin against God by having an adulterous affair with Bathsheba? How did he sin against God by sending Uriah off to be killed? Well, he set himself above God's authority. He kicked God off the throne, put himself there, and said, I'm in charge, I'm the lawgiver. What I say goes. He struck a blow at the very character of God and the authority of God. David's cry tells us that he finally recognized just how serious sin is. So how do you perceive sin? What's your attitude towards sin? Do you look at sin like you're driving along 57, 58 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone? Or do you look at sin like you're doing 100 in a 15-mile-an-hour school zone? How do you think God looks at sin? How do you think he sees it? Do you rationalize the severity of your sin? Do you have an internal bias? Compare your sins to your neighbors and go... I'm not that bad. Do you feel okay because of that? We need to see that all sin is rebellion against God's law. It's an assault on God's character. All sin is serious. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, 
and you can't usurp that place. There's only one judge that applies the law. There's only one who has the power to acquit by mercy through faith in Christ. And there's only one who has the power to condemn. And that one is God. Sin in folly and stupidity brashly says, get off the throne, God. I'm in charge. Can you see why sin is so hateful to God? Do you see why we should hate sin as well? What's your attitude towards sin? Can you see it from God's perspective? Just a glimpse. I control evil speech by thinking rightly of God, by keeping him on the throne where he belongs. The last area of thought for us to look at is what we think about ourselves. In a few simple words, James just drives a, a dagger right to the heart. Look at the end of verse 12. But you who are to judge, who are you to judge your neighbor? The word judge here is in the present participle, and that indicates it could be a habitual pattern, a, a lifestyle of condemnation. So who in the world do you think you are? Who are you? Who am I? And that sounds like an age-old question, doesn't it? Who am I? You know, the ancient Greeks in their, their temple of Apollo in the city of Delphi, they carved some things above the door. And the first thing they, they carved was, know thyself. Know thyself. Answer that age-old question, who am I? Socrates, talking about this, said, um, the unexamined life is not worth living. It's basically saying, if you don't know yourself, your life isn't worth anything. Dirty Harry, you know, in the, the movies. Detective Dirty Harry Callahan put it this way. A man's got to know his limitations. Knowing yourself, answering that question, who am I, is so ubiquitous that it's become a cliche in self-help psychoanalysis circles. But most, if not all, miss the mark in truly knowing themselves and in knowing who they are because they, they don't ask a very fundamental question. Who's in control? Do I think that I'm in control? If I do, that's, that's just pride. Or do I recognize that God is in ultimate control? That's the beginning of humility. That's the foundation for truly knowing yourself. I control evil speech by knowing who I am and whose I am. Now, we've painted a pretty terrible picture of sin so far, and, and hopefully that helps you see how and why God hates it so much. But there's another side to that coin. It doesn't matter how bad sin is. 
how horrible, how terrible. That only makes God's grace more amazing, more beautiful. Because God's grace covers the horror, the stain of every sin. Are you guilty of backbiting, of gossip, of slander? Well, we all are at one time or another, aren't we? None of us is perfect. If these permeate your life, though, if this kind of speech is habitual, a part of your very lifestyle, then you maybe should be considering that the faith you're professing is that dead faith that James talked about earlier. It's not too late, though, to come to the cross, to profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to accept the atoning sacrifice that he has made. If you do that, he'll give you new faith, faith that is alive, not dead. But if these are only an occasional occurrence, then James has given us a way to work on controlling our tongue by right thinking. Right thinking about others, right thinking about the law, right thinking about God, and right thinking about ourselves. Our second point this morning is what's your attitude towards God's will? And that's where James turns our attention now through an illustration of planning for the future. Have you ever made a plan? Of course you have. You may have already made plans for lunch today or, or plans for a vacation or you do strategic plans for your business or you do life plans or you plan a party or you do career planning. Where do you want to be in five years, in 10 years? People talk about planning a lot, and they often contradict themselves and others. Um, I, lo I looked up some fun quotes on planning, so let me share those with you. A goal without a plan is just a wish. Antoine de Saint-Juppery, um, a Frenchman, He's famous for writing the book, The Little Prince. A goal without a plan is just a wish. Dwight Eisenhower said, plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. By failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. Ben Franklin said that. Winston Churchill put his own twist on it and came up with, he who fails to plan is planning to fail. Interestingly, Churchill also said, it's a mistake to try and look too far ahead. The more the plans fail, the more the planners plan, Ronald Reagan. Mark Twain said, plan for the future because that's where you'll spend the rest of your life. An idiot with a plan can beat a genius without a plan, Warren Buffett. The afternoon knows what the morning never suspected. Robert Frost. And my kind of favorite is Anonymous. 
planning is important, but the most important part of every plan is to plan on the plan, not going according to plan. So what does James have to say about planning? Pick up and let's read in verse 13. Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow, you, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now planning in and of itself is amoral. There's nothing immoral about it. No spiritual principles are violated by any of this. It's rational, it's logical, it's even prudent for us to make plans. James' point here is not about planning per se. It's about including God in your planning, recognizing that God's will is going to impact your plan. James points out three attitudes toward the will of God. Let's look at them one by one. The first is ignoring God's will. Now, it sounds like James is addressing some specific individuals here, or at least some kind of common occurrence, because he starts this section in verse 13 with, come now. Doesn't sound too forceful in English, but in the Greek, this is actually a pretty intense attention getter. James really wants folks to listen here. Now, we know that James was writing to Jewish Christians, and we know that many of the Jews were engaged in, in commerce. They were traders. They were businessmen. It seems word has gotten back to James that some of the Jews were discussing their business plans and boasting about their successes in the past. But they were even boasting about their future successes. There's no evidence that they had in any way, shape, or form sought God's will that they'd prayed about these plans or about their decisions. They measured success by how many times they got their own way and accomplished what they'd set out to do, what they'd planned. James reveals the foolishness of ignoring the will of God in four arguments. Argument one, the sheer complexity of life. If we stop and think about it for a moment, there's a, an infinite combination of forces, of events, of circumstances, and people that are all beyond our control, and they all impact our future. That makes it impossible for anyone to know the future, let alone control it. And yet there are people in the world who think that they are in control. How much better to heed the words of Proverbs Chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Planning for the future is too complex without God. How much better to trust the one who not only knows the future, 
and has the power to shape it, but lovingly cares for you as well. The second argument James presents is the uncertainty of life. And in the first part of uh, verse 14 here, it, it sure seems like James is borrowing from Proverbs 27, verse 1, which reads, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. These merchants, they're confidently planning a year or more out in advance when they don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. They're choosing when to go, where to go, how long they're going to stay, what they're going to do, and they're even predicting a successful outcome. Does this remind you of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12? You know, the guy who, who, whose land brought in a bumper crop. His harvest was so great that his barns wouldn't hold it. So he tore down his barns. He built new and bigger ones. And then he sat back and said, man, you've got a lot of stuff stored up for a long time. Kick back, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, you fool. Tonight, your life is demanded from you. Only a fool does not include God in his plan. We don't know the future. And James makes that clear. In verse 14, he says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. The second part of verse 14 gives us the third of James' arguments, and that is the brevity of life. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. This earthly life can seem long to us, but compared to eternity, it's extremely short. James probably had the book of Job in mind when he used the image of vapor. Job makes a lot of references to the shortness of life. He said things like this, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. When a cloud vanishes, it's gone. Our days on earth are as shadows. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They slip by like reed boats, like an eagle that swoops on its prey. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. We tend to think of age and years, don't we? We, we commemorate birthdays, um, anniversaries. What does God say? We should number our days. We only live one day at a time. And have you noticed those days go by faster and faster the older we get? Life is brief. What are you doing with your time? Are you spending it on earthly pursuits? Or are you investing it in eternal things, the things of God? The fourth and final argument James raises to reveal the foolishness of ignoring God's will is the frailty of man. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It's been said that boasting only covers up a man's weakness. It's foolish to boast about what you cannot accomplish. Thomas Akempis 
rightly wrote, man proposes, but God disposes. We don't have the wisdom to see the future, let alone the power to control the future. So such boasting is foolish pride. It's sin. It's setting ourselves above God's will. William Ernest Henley, you may have heard of him. He epitomizes this attitude in his famous poem, Invictus. You've, you've probably heard it, but listen to it again. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever God may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Pride, arrogance, self-reliance, all on full display. He admits knowing there is a God and to at least some knowledge of scripture, and yet he chooses to stand alone on his own mortal frailty in direct defiance of the very God who he acknowledges has given him his soul. Henley died in 1903 at the age of 53. He had an extremely hard life. He overcame much. I have to wonder if he wouldn't like to rewrite his poem at this point. Life is too complex. Life is too uncertain and too brief, and we are far too fragile for us to ignore God's will. Well, there's ignoring God's will. There's also disobeying God's will. Verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. These are people who know what the will of God is, but deliberately choose to disobey it. The attitude displayed here is even more prideful than the first. I know what you want me to do, God, but I'd prefer not to. Besides, I think I know better. People like to boast, like William Henley, about being the master of their fate, the captain of their soul. After all, look at all the fantastic things man has accomplished. Surely nothing is impossible. I think the primary reason, though, that people who know the will of God refuse to obey is simply selfish pride. There's another issue, though, that can contribute and is worthy of our consideration, and that's misunderstanding the nature of God's will. Or, or it could be an incomplete understanding. You see, by nature, God's will is not an option for believers. It's an obligation. We can't 
take it or leave it. We can't choose to, to um, honor it one day and reject it tomorrow. It's a duty. It's an obligation. But it should be our delight. For the believer, to treat the will of God lightly is also to invite the chastening of God. We should not be surprised then if we are chastened when we knowingly disobey the will of God. It is the loving father who disciplines his child. God's chastening, his discipline, is evidence of his love and nothing less. Chastening is hard to take, but it carries the comfort of knowing that we're a true child of God. Now, if a professed believer is not chastened, it may be, it may be evidence that that faith they're professing is dead. Now, disobeying also carries the danger of losing heavenly rewards for the believer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul compared the believer to a runner in a race. If the runner didn't obey the rules, he was disqualified and forfeited any claim to the prize. This refers to the loss of rewards, not to the loss of salvation. Disobeying God's will today may not seem like a very serious thing, but it will be serious when we stand before the Lord on that day. And finally, the right attitude, obeying God's will. Look at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Instead of ignoring God in your selfish pride, instead of arrogantly disobeying what you know God wants, we ought to humbly proclaim, if the Lord wills, we will live. We will live. And that takes care of the frailty. That takes care of the brevity of life. If the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. Those complexities, that uncertainty, that all goes away. If we want to live life the way God intends us to, then we have to put him in the middle of our lives. If you're living a life consistent with faith in Christ, if your faith is alive and not dead, then God will be in the center of your plans. This is another of the tests that James has given us, tests that we can use to self-evaluate, signposts so that we know we're on the right path, that we haven't strayed. Henry Ward Beecher said this, Imagine a man building a house. And the man building the house decides to build it by his own plan rather than the plan of the architect. And so the man proceeds to build, and the architect comes and proceeds to check, and there's no relationship between the two. The result is absolute chaos. Beecher goes on to say, so it is in building a life. God is the architect. And a man would be an absolute fool if he decided to build it any way his whims dictated. 
God has designed how life is to be built. And if you're the true child of God, you will find yourself enamored with, settled on, and committed to seeing God build your life the way he wants to build it. Now, we're not perfect. We're going to fight against this every now and then. And that's why these tests that James has given us are so practical. Brothers and sisters, the message of James here is simple. Live your life in the will of God. In Ephesians 6, verse 6, Paul tells us that doing, he talks about doing the will of God from the heart. Doing it because you want to, not because you have to. In Colossians 1, 9, we read that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And jumping down to chapter 4 of that same book in verse 12, that you may stand perfect and fully assured, that is, complete in all the will of God. You see, God wants you to know and understand his will. Why? So that you can do it all the time. And finally, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, that's what God the Father wants to do in you. That's what Christ died to make possible in you. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to energize in you, that you would do his will. Do it with all your heart. Do it all the time and realize that is exactly what God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit are working to do in you. That's God's will. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed to have your word. It, it, it shows us how we should live. Thank you for these practical indicators that we might know that our lives are consistent with living faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, um, for any who, who might not be on that path, who, who might have dead faith oh you have put the way in front of us to get back on the path and that way is through the cross lord if we have strayed off the path um, your loving discipline your chastening brings us back to the path thank you for these provisions lord Father, would you help us to think rightly about others, about your law, and even about ourselves so that what comes out of our hearts is humble and loving and not prideful and malicious. Thank you, Lord, for the awareness that you need to be smack dab in the middle of our lives so that we can live in your will and not in our own. 
Your love for us is overwhelming. May we love you wholeheartedly. And may we love all those that you love as well. Go with us now, Lord. And may the honor and the glory and the praise always be to you and you alone. In the name of Jesus, amen.